Okay, uh, welcome everyone. Um, I'm pleased you all made it to the different room at the different time. Um, I suspect there will be some people who uh, have gone to Senate House. I'm hoping that they went for 5.30 and so that by now they will uh, have arrived. Um, but be prepared for the uh, odd interruption. I expect there might be one or two more people to come through the door. Um, we're very, very fortunate this evening to have with us Mina Danda. Um, I'm particularly delighted to be introducing Mina because I have known Mina for 25 anyway. Yeah, maybe 30 years. Yes, maybe, maybe as long as that. Um, Mina was in Balliol, I think, at the same time as I was when, when I first arrived. Mina was a lovely, friendly face around the place. Um, and um, unfortunately, Mina left to go to Wolverhampton, um, and so we were unable to continue to see each other on a very regular basis. Um, but Wolverhampton knew a good thing when they saw one and snapped her up. She's still Professor of Philosophy and Cultural Politics at Wolverhampton. She is the author of many works, including The Negotiation of Personal Identity, uh, and also uh, a collection uh, called Reservations for Women, um, as well as numerous other papers, journal articles, chapters in books, and so on. Um, her talk this evening is entitled Philosophical Foundations of Anti-Casteism. Um, and I'm going to move out of the way so that I'm not blocking everybody's view of uh, the PowerPoint. Um, so please, would you join me in welcoming Mina Danda. Thank you, Helen. It, it is really a delight to be <coughs> speaking here today. And, and an honor. I, I didn't think I will ever come and speak to the Aristotelian Society. <laughs> um, I um, am not going to give a preface to my talk because it's rather long. So I'm just going to launch straight into it. There's a PowerPoint which doesn't capture everything I've got to say, but only some key statements here and there so that you can um, read them. If I'm not going to read all of them, you can grasp them in a go. Uh, I have, I, I can see some friends in the audience, so hello to everyone. Some I've seen after a very, very long time. So, um, philosophical foundations of anti-casteism might seem like a contrived topic. And I must say, it is contrived because I don't think I've, I ever thought that one could look at anti-casteism, which for me has been, um, a matter of advocacy and perhaps a matter of research in social science in general, but only lately has it has become a matter of thinking about philosophical concepts informed by my understanding of what I have found out in my social scientific research. And I've, I've tried to now think about social philosophy itself as empirically informed and how it becomes different if it is empirically informed rather than using thought experiments <coughs> and using uh, works of other people. It, it makes a big deal of difference if you yourself are the inquirer in both domains. So this is a very new thing for me, so I hope you will be patient with my many mistakes that I will make. <laughs> a lot of what I have to say is quite tentative as well. The very first thing I have to say is rather quite tentative. 
So, understanding the meaning of caste in the way in which it touches people's lives requires openness of mind, with an immediacy of attention to the plight of those who suffer the prejudice and humiliation that accrue from it, as well as a long-term commitment to follow through historical, anthropological, and social scientific research on its reconfigurations. Caste continues to shape the life worlds of millions of people around the world. What is caste? As a working definition, I suggest that caste is a category of social belonging attributed due to birth within a group, itself placed amongst a historically shifting hierarchy of groups subject to economic, political, and stated rewards for continued allegiance and losses or penalties for transgression of group boundaries maintained by endogamy. It's a rather long definition. And many other sociologists, anthropologists have given definitions, and I've attempted for the first time to write my own definition of what caste is. To the extent that it is unchosen, caste is comparable to race because similar types of encumbrances or privileges are associated with both. Casteism, which I derive from caste, I propose is a form of inferiorization which limits development of human potential. And anti-casteism, with reference to casteism, is an ideological critique of various mystifications which accompany the attribution of abstract equality to caste-governed lives. Anti-casteism challenges foundational myths of the necessity for making any caste discriminations at all. It makes apparent the unethical operations of caste. Anti-casteism, though, is of different kinds, and we'll see that in the historical um, background that I will give you. It makes apparent, um, historically, movements against untouchability, the universally accepted screw of caste, have relied on different values, as we shall see. Internationally, some jurisdictions have recognized the need to institute legal measures to address the disabilities connected with caste. Uh, it's not just India's Nepal, you know, uh, Burkina Faso, Mauritius, many other places, but not some key ones you would expect, like Canada doesn't have a legislation, even though there is uh, quite a big South Asian uh, community there which might have caste problems, nor does the US, nor does Japan. Um, UK embarked on a parliamentary process to institute legal protection for victims of caste discrimination, but the process remains unfinished. A drawback is the lack of adequate engagement by the wider non-caste community, who form the bulk of silent bystanders, including many of our representatives in Parliament. They are silent due to ignorance, but also due to the fear of treading on religious sensitivities of immigrant communities. The silence of the bystanders could perhaps be broken uh, within the philosophical community, I hope. Uh, so as a contribution in this paper, I address some contextual and some philosophical questions. In comparison with anti-racism, what is different about the lack of consensus on instituting legal remedies for caste discrimination? Are the divisions among stakeholders due to contingent political legal factors, or are there deeper underpinning historical, ideological, cultural contestations? What value can anti-casteism draw on to generate a more universal appeal? And can an understanding of philosophical foundations of anti-casteism help us approach the problem afresh? 
these are many questions and it's a, a very daunting task which I am only first going to attempt by presenting the context for the discussion of caste in Britain, followed by briefly explaining what caste means, how it's used, and then to show the philosophical contestations on the value of caste in the Indian nationalist debates, which are continuous with the arguments and discussions used today. And, and then uh, offer some consideration of foundational values underpinning anti-casteism as a critical force. So we will seek foundations that can stabilize the best features of collective emancipatory struggles to address the social ill of inferiorization, oppression and discrimination, which is based on caste, however it is named. So what caste means continues to be contested. However, the challenges to the meaning of caste are not always made with fair intentions to seek clarity. Sometimes these challenges regarding the meaning of caste are made to deny casteism and caste discrimination that results from it. <coughs> Certain challenges in the UK have over the last decade stepped up the pressure on the government against fulfilling its statutory duty to institute legal protection for sufferers of caste discrimination. For the victims of discrimination, as the Dalit Solidarity Network report of 2006 from the UK so neatly put in its title, there is no escape. Once marked and with no escape, a victim might then choose to use caste as a standpoint from which to voice protest and seek solidarity. So how might we form protective bonds of solidarity counteracting the corrosive vines of serial relations, in the sense that South uses the term. What is it? That's a question that I will not be able to really answer in this paper. But here I note that being connected to others and being accepted by others are distinct social and ethical relationships within the same moral universe. As South explains, people are separated by alterity, by antagonism, by their place in the system. But these separations, such as hatred, flight, etc., are also modes of connection. So one may remain connected to others who do not accept one on ethically reciprocal terms. And sometimes these connections are the most pernicious, debilitating, energy sapping, and soul destroying kinds. For the inhabitants of the caste world, these connections oscillate between the foreground and the background, but they never disappear. So caste society offers habitual allegiances. It is a category of social belonging, as I've just said in my working definition. And Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, uh, a Dalit icon, a neglected thinker of extraordinary breadth and philosophical, social, scientific, political, legal knowledge, uh, well, he defines caste as an enclosed class. He argued that habitual contact uh, with the backing of religion is not easy to change and that salvation will come only if caste Hindu is, I quote, made to think and is forced to feel that he must alter his ways. We need to think through the means of defiance against systemic oppression and stigmatization of people on the basis of caste. That is, we need to explicate what form anti-casteism should take. So I now go to the UK political legal context. And it's important here to remind ourselves of what happened when the future of multi-ethnic Britain, the Parikh report, came out. Uh, it was met with a vitriolic attack in the national press. It was called dreadful rubbish, potty and sinister, and an assault on national pride. Because 
any intellectual position that problematizes national identity through the lens of race and ethnicity or promotes positive discrimination draws the ire of the highly racialized public sphere. Now there is a similarity of response to the reports on caste in Britain from some other quarters of the British public. Caste in Britain was a project that I led for the UK Equality and Human Rights Commission. Um, and um, I've just listed the various things that have happened in, in a chronology. You will learn about it, but on this slide, everything is there or what has happened so far. Um, the remit of the project was to review existing social legal research on caste and British law, and second, to conduct uh, two supporting events with the aim of bringing together interdisciplinary expertise and a range of stakeholders' views on caste and caste discrimination in the UK. Uh, in April 2013, both Houses of Parliament voted to enact the Enterprise and Regulatory Reform Bill, Section 97 of which requires the government to introduce a statutory prohibition of caste discrimination into British equality law by making caste an aspect of race uh, in, uh, of the protected characters of race in the Equality Act 2010. Now it is important to clarify here because this confusion ranges in amongst many people who have either read the report or academics who respond to it, that here we were fulfilling the brief of the EHRC to identify stakeholders and experts concerned in relation to the implementation of uh, um, the statutory prohibition on caste. Uh, because this was in anticipation of the next step which the government has to do, which is to bring out a secondary legislation which will actually seal the law. It was not open to us to discuss whether caste should be a legislation because that had already been decided by primary legislation. So many stakeholders put us to ask the question, why should we have the legislation at all? That wasn't what we could have discussed because primary legislation had already passed that the law must come in. And now the question was, how must it come in? And that's what we were there to discuss. So there was, however, no foregone conclusion in our debates about what exceptions must apply to the Equality Act in relation to caste. For example, would exclusive caste associations be allowed? That was a question that would be in people's mind. So there was open discussion, which had to ha be had on such questions. Um, and to the stakeholders who attended our EHRC workshop, which were representing 43 different organizations, we presented our considered view on how caste might be addressed by the law. Looking back now, from the vantage point of the online public consultation on legislation on caste, which is con recently concluded by the Government Equality Office in 2017, it is hard to recall the feeling of satisfaction that we then had in building bridges. We thought we had made a breakthrough because even the Alliance of Hindu Organization the following day gave a press release that there were pockets of discrimination. That was a concession, we thought, a big victory. But now, as years have gone by, it's been, positions have hardened. Two months after the close of the public consultation, the conservative MP for uh, Maharo East, Bob Blackman, relayed the reported view of the British Hindus, and I quote, that having caste as a protected characteristic in equality law is unnecessary and divisive. And he urged his uh, right honorable friend to take action to remove that provision, which was introduced by the Labour Party. 
And this actually echoed the view of the National Council of Hindu Temples, which had on numerous occasions claimed that caste was an outdated colonial Christian concept, discriminatory and prejudicial towards Hindus. This position draws on the work of the academic Prakash Shah, with whom I often have discussions, who has also accused us of suffering from colonial consciousness simply for criticizing casteism. So um, these were the reports that we published. And now we come to the key aspects of the political legal context. The first is that uh, there is a contradictory appeal to Britain's colonial past. So on the one hand, the colonial subjects proper, who are the ex-untouchables, the Dalits, who have indeed suffered the brunt of the colonizer's rule, who appeal to the government to protect them from caste discrimination. On the other hand, are the spokespersons of the upper caste Hindus, who present themselves in the image of the colonized subjects seeking justice. When anti-casters, many of them Dalits, demand legal measures that might lead to scrutiny of the punitive aspects of the hierarchical and hereditary bearing reward system that they follow through their group allegiances. The second aspect of the difficulty is of the definition of caste, which has a bearing on how we might define casteism and thereby anti-casteism. And here we have the words of Bhikkhu Parikh. Uh, the difficulty is expressed by Lord Bhikkhu Parikh. Uh, who, while supposing the amendment to the Equality Act in 2010, he voted with the Labour Whip for the amendment, but he actually argued in the Parliament against it. And he said, talking about abolishing the caste system is extremely problematic because it could mean getting rid of the category, getting rid of the hierarchy among the categories, or getting rid of the principle of hereditary, um, and where do you start? He conceded that untouchability exists in the UK in small pockets, but concluded that once you take away the untouchability bit, there is no evidence of any kind to show that caste discrimination takes place. I disagree. It is a mischaracterization to present casteism in the UK as being fundamentally about small pockets of untouchability. My extensive research on Dalit experience and perception shows otherwise. Besides untouchability, there are stories of caste prejudice, bullying, and harassment. Uh, Lord Parikh had also asked, how do you define caste? Implying correctly that this is no easy undertaking. But it is not necessary or possible to have a precise definition of caste. What matters, I think, is not the precise meaning of the term caste, but a working definition to enable the identification of the pattern of behavior that can be identified as casteist. In fact, we know that race itself is left undefined in the Equality Act. The third aspect of this political legal context is the question of whether caste discrimination exists. So we have claimed that there is evidence of discrimination to warrant the inclusion of caste in the Equality Act, uh, as our research has shown. In the written paper, there will be lots of references which you, you would be free to follow. Um, over the years, I have heard respondents in interviews repeatedly use similar phrases to describe their experience of caste as prejudice. So they will say, it sticks. People are set in their ways. The hold of caste on people's mind is something we have to break. It is a part of the psyche, in our blood, fundamentally not change. All of these are quotations from interviews that people have given. It is clear to those who are prepared to listen 
that for some Dalits in the UK, perceived low caste status is an ongoing and unsettling experience. It has been one of the motivating factors for religious conversion, fueled by a desire for respect or dignity. The extent of caste discrimination in the UK has not been established because no one has attempted to do so. And lack of sizable evidence is cited as a reason not to legislate. But no step has been taken to act on the recommendation of a feasibility study which was funded by the Government Equality Office and they, they held on the report for two years that the extent of caste discrimination can in fact be quantified by using the instruments of existing surveys. They just need to suitably modify them and it would be possible to do a, a quality, quantitative survey and get results without incurring any significant risk. The UK government announced its response to the public consultation in July 2018 and a decision to invite parliament to repeal and rely on case law. And of course, uh, Penny Morden also uh, announced that there will be a short guidance uh, which would be of particular use to individuals who feel that they may have suffered discrimination on grounds of caste. So this brings us to the fourth and final aspect of the context, uh, which is a religious discursive aspect, and this is what I call the generation of an emergent vulnerability. It has been claimed by Prakasha, who I mentioned before, that in order to get to this um, uh, the result of the public consultation that the government will follow the case law route, there had been some high-level um, negotiations with Hindu groups. This is coming from him, quotation from him, that the signal was given at the highest level that people will be satisfied by ending the legislative duty and allowing case law to look after those who suffer from caste discrimination. And this tacit agreement seems to have paved the way for proposing the case law option which is a judicial extension of equality law to caste and setting slide, letting slide the legislative duty. Shah is partly right in drawing the conclusion that either judicially developed law or explicit reference to caste may be used by litigants. But I don't think that they can be used equally well. It's extremely hard for people who are litigants to rely on lawyers and pay them an enormous amounts of money to follow a case and then rely on that case not being overturned at some highest level. It would be far, there would be far more certainty if caste was added to the equality as we have proposed. But Shah is however wrong on a very key matter, which is this, that he says both instances, case law or uh, adding caste, uh, the presumption and thus the basis of the law is that Hindus at least, if not South Asians, are caste racist. This is a term he uses. The term caste racist is a novel label introduced by Shah into the debate. The Anti-Caste Legislation Committee's recent report drawing heavily on Shah's work does not repeat the term but reiterates the central point that with regard to the UK government's various reports and instrumental measures, we are, we can, and this is a quote, we might even speak of institutional casteism directed at Hindus. We have here an example of the inversion of the language of protest introduced by anti-racists. Instead of applying to historically marginalized and oppressed groups, the deniers of caste discrimination have invoked the specter of a beleaguered religious group, called them Brahmin Hindus, allegedly still under the yoke of their erstwhile colonial masters. 
In the present context, I ask, can the charge of institutional casteism directed at Hindus be a truthful claim? To answer this question, one might propose, uh, one might compare the proposed protection against caste discrimination with the legal protection enshrined in the Equality Act against sex discrimination. Can this later legal protection be re-described as institutional sexism directed at men? Should the feminists who spearheaded the change in law be accused of inciting hatred against men? Should the governmental support for these feminists, reluctant as it was, be labelled as institutional sexism? Anti-discrimination legislation historical, uh, challenges historical patriarchy understood as systematic oppression of women, but it protects men and women equally. Anti-casteism, well enshrined in the anti-discrimination legislation, would challenge historical casteism understood as systematic oppression of the so-called lower caste, but it would protect any caste group, lower or upper, equally. The difference in my position and Shah's is that Shah speaks on behalf of those who are likely to be targets of litigation, whereas I am concerned for the litigants who need recourse to the law. So we are speaking for completely opposite people involved in this context. Both uh, would be affected by the law if it comes into being. And I want to discuss uh, some uh, collective hypocrisies that I think prevent us from coming to an understanding on what should be done about caste discrimination. Reflecting on what I've heard over the years from the opponents and supporters of legislation, my hypothesis is that the experience of casteism shapes people's lives differently depending upon their location in the matrix of what we may call collective hypocrisies. And I borrowed this term from Amy Cesar's marvelous essay, Discourse on Colonialism, there is a collective hypocrisy in remaining silent about the apparitions of um, caste privilege. I think I'll go back there. The new arrival of the gold digger and the merchant is announced with the triumphalism thus, uh, quote, India will be a global player of considerable political and economic impact. As a result, we need to explicate what it means to be Indian. Uh, or what it makes Indian culture, Indian, not just modern, will soon become a task of the intelligentsia of India. This is Essen Balagandhara, a Belgian philosopher, Indian in Belgian philosopher, who is relied on by Prakasha and many of his other friends. <coughs> the battle over the meaning and the value reevaluation of caste in the caste system was bound to be cast out a century after Indian nationalist struggles with how a section of, um, how to section of the reprehensible untouchability from the ubiquitous caste that defines the particularity of the subcontinent. Collective hypocrisy, I think I need some water, sorry. Collective hypocrisy leads to misrepresentation of problems thus. The person belonging to the so-called upper caste can be imagined as saying, in comparison with the humiliation that I have experienced at the hands of racists, I do not see myself as a casteist. So there is a discontinuity in experience that allows a collective hypocrisy of caste is benign to take hold. 
For the Dalit, on the other hand, there is a continuity of experience of humiliation and hence the insistence that casteism and racism are similar, as my respondents have often told me. So in the diaspora, a specter of racism, either foregrounded or in the background, is always there. And against this spectral presence, claims of casteism are presented. This condition has the paradoxical potential both to generate solidarities with the oppressed as well as routes to evasion of responsibility. So I have used the notion of collective hypocrisies to challenge the position taken by the deniers of caste discrimination uh, that speaking of caste is to suffer from a colonial consciousness. My aim is to recall what anti-colonialism really means. It is affirmation of solidarity with the real victims of colonialism and to foreground subjective experience of humiliation, stigma, protest, negotiation and transformation. Recent work on the modernity of caste and its embeddedness in the market economy in the Indian context shows that caste is not a fading residuum of erstwhile ritual social relations, but it's constantly renewed. There are several quantitative studies now, some by economists, which show the continued dominance of Brahmins on a variety of markers of social and economic well-being. Putting a question mark on the narrative of caste um, and suggesting that caste is now merely a matter of ethnicity and not of hierarchy is very problematic for me. This is happening among sociologists in India as well as here. Ethnographic studies also challenge the claim that caste projected as cultural community. Instead, instead it is found as that caste is parading as cultural identity while reproducing social inequality. It has become possible using all kinds of communitarian logics to start talking about caste as community and minus from it the element of hierarchy, inferiorization, uh, differential access to resources, uh, opportunity hoarding and everything that is negative about <coughs> caste. The idea of caste society by historians uh, is actually can be traced to antiquity and there are people who draw parallels between platonic tripartite division of classes in the republic and the Indian caste system including some of the values associated with these um, different classes. Romila Thapar who is uh, the eminent historian worth reading if, if you do not already know her uh, actually shows that within the Indian tradition there are two quite distinct traditions the Brahminism which advances the idea of relying on the functions of caste and shamanism which is actually opposed to it. So there are traditions within the Indian tradition which have challenged and questioned uh, caste. By now it is well known that caste derives from the Portuguese word casta which predates the English word caste by more than two centuries but I will not go very much more into that detail as I'm mindful of time. But coming to the colonial period, a hundred years ago, when the abolition of slavery was taking place across the world, agrarian slavery associated with Dalit landless in British India was conveniently ignored. And Rupa Vishwanath, uh, she's a historian also, in her remarkable book, The Pariah Problem, Caste, Religion, and the social in modern India explains that despite their theological opposition to caste, 
the Protestant missionaries were also in practice often at pains to accommodate the caste scruples of the non-pariah converts. Their ruse was that they could only concern themselves with the religious aspect of caste, not the civil aspect. And Vishwanath calls this the caste state nexus. It was such non-action against caste-based violations of citizens' rights facilitated by British administration that led and exasperated Ambedkar to claim in a letter, um, indeed, if the British rule has achieved anything in India, it is to strengthen and invigorate Brahminism, which is the inveterate enemy of the untouchables. Ambedkar's anti-colonialism never wearied of remembering the British state to enforce its own laws, for he was deeply convinced that the exercise of rights as equal citizens required the rigorous enforcement of the law. Now, the relevance of the above retracing of the historical antecedents of our understanding of caste is to show the dubiousness of the claim that the idea of hierarchical caste system originated in the British colonial period. The purpose is also to rebut the concomitant claim that those of us who make a case for anti-casteism, some clearly inspired by Baba Sabambedkar, are suffering from colonial consciousness. There are variants of denials of caste uh, hierarchies. There are others. Some of these scholars uh, uh, argue that today caste is better represented as a matter of cultural identity and community rather than inherited status or inequality. But when they write, they might deny pure hierarchies. They might say that pure hierarchies between bounded groups have gone away. But even they do not deny that alternative hierarchies remain. So my interest is that we can actually use the idea um, of hierarchy um, as something which is necessarily connected to caste. Ambedkar has this fantastic notion of graded inequality, uh, where he explains that each group finds another lower than itself. Uh, and that necessity to find someone lower than themselves uh, is uh, the necessary accompaniment of caste, which is what leads to inferiorization of the other. So we cannot just have a celebrating assertiveness of caste pride as group solidarity without taking account of the inbuilt feature that some hierarchy will necessarily be included in your celebration of caste identity. So this emphasis on culture has, however, been explained as an adaptation in modern economic and democratic circumstances of caste as a form of social differentiation that still leaves, uh, still serves to keep people in their social economic place. New research has con um, questioned the earlier, older binary structural models like Dumont's uh, Homo hierarchicus. Which, uh, in which each is assigned his place in a hierarchy, which is necessarily a matter of pure and impure. But of relevance is the observation that those who are most oppressed materially are at the same time seen as supremely impure. The impetus to have a different understanding of caste has come from new scholarship, notably from Dalit economists, who are trying to lay bare the caste-regulated and caste-network nature of the Indian market economy. An example, another example of caste is just a network, it's an association. It is found in, again, in Bhikkhu Parikh, 
no need to read the long quotation, which is something he said in a radio show in 2003, and where he uh, said that caste becomes more like a civic association, a network from which you can get capital, a network from which you can get your clients, etc. Caste in some form is bound to stay for a long time because people see advantages in it. So he actually conceded that this is, is going to have a long run. And, and he says, I can see that it is a good rational negotiating strategy. Lord Parikh's affirmation of caste as a good rational negotiating strategy is precisely what Ambedkar would call an anti-social morality. In its particularism, its exclusivity, its groupism, such an anti-social morality undermines the kind of universal morality that Ambedkar sought to institutionalize in the law. Uh, I note that, of course, besides offering an uncritical affirmation of the value of caste, Lord Parikh, perhaps inadvertently, has confirmed that uh, caste ha is going to have a long life in UK. So uh, that indirectly should mean that we must do something about it. It's not just going to die or go away on its own. Uh, and I want to look at some ideological contestations on caste. Uh, and an example of an Indian reformist uh, who engaged in uh, this ideological contestation of caste uh, is Swami Vivekananda. He and Gandhi followed what I might label as the view that old was good, new is distortion. They tried to look at what was caste in the distant past and derive from it what it was about it that we could value. And anything that was negative about caste was attributed to the modern distortions of it. That's both Vivekananda and Gandhi follow that, uh, that logic. Um, So Vivekananda had said that um, I, uh, what I have to tell you, my countrymen, is this, this is quotation from him, that India fell because you prevented an abolished caste. Let Jati have its sway, break down every barrier in the way of caste, and we shall rise. This is what was Vivekananda's view. The continuity of this line of reasoning is in Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, and it is a sharp contrast with the views of Baba Sahib Ambedkar, who, because he had suffered the yoke of untouchability, located the roots of the social ill of caste in the philosophy of Hinduism. Ambedkar had criticized the Bhagavad Gita for providing a philosophical foundation for Chaturvarnya, the four, four, four Varnas, Brahmin, Chatya, Vesha, and Shudra, although he did see some parallels in some of his teaching with those of Buddhism too. For him, every part of the old was not good. Some of it he characterized as counter-revolution, designed to defeat the marvelous revolution ushered by Buddhist ideas of godless equality. He also found a parallel in his philosophy, in this philosophy, in Nietzsche. Citing Antichrist, he tells us, this is in his work, Philosophy of Buddhism, and Nietzsche's praise for the law book of Manu it is replete, this is Nietzsche, it is replete with noble values. It is filled 
with the feeling of perfection, with a yea to life. Ambedkar thought that Manu's is a degraded and degenerate philosophy, far more odious and loathsome than the philosophy of Nietzsche. So Ambedkar was an uncompromising, uh, very uncompromising when confronting his opponents, uh, chiefly among them Gandhi. And Ambedkar and Gandhi differed on the question of how to combat casteism. Uh, Gandhi relied on personal transformation to negotiate social ills, and Ambedkar relied on institutional measures. That was one big difference between them. But each of them did draw inspiration for their respective versions of equality and liberty from global sources. They didn't rely only on Indian philosophy or Indian thinking. They, they, they relied on uh, Enlightenment philosophers or what have you. Uh, Gandhi was of the view that uh, the law of heredity is an eternal law. And any attempt to alter that law must lead, as it has done before, to utter confusion. I just want to pick up um, one uh, aspect of what he says. He says that uh, if Hindus believe, as they must, uh, must believe in reincarnation, transmigration, they must know that nature will, without any possibility of mistake, adjust the balance by degrading a Brahmin if he misbehaves himself by reincarnating him in a lower division and translating one who lives the life of a Brahmin in his present incarnation to a Brahminhood in the next. So it looks like he says, oh, it doesn't matter if there's a bad, a bad Brahmin will in the next life be lowered, brought lower down, and someone who's born and untouchable now and he lives well will be uh, upgraded. Now what does that actually tell you? Uh, we might note actually a contradiction in Gandhi's espousal of the leveling effect of karma on caste inequality, whilst declaring that caste system is not based on inequality. So if indeed there was no inequality or inferiority built into the system, why would reincarnation lead to placing an errant Brahmin in a lower division in the next life? Why would it be necessary to make someone lower or higher? If it was a lottery and everyone was equal, there'd be another lottery and everyone is equal. So implicitly, Gandhi has considered that the idea of hierarchy is inescapable after all. It's in inescapable now, it's inescapable in the next life. So to me, it seems that hereditary hierarchy is internal to caste identity. To deny it is hypocrisy. And Gandhi is guilty of that hypocrisy. But even Gandhi would not have denied that caste identity is used as a basis for social differentiation and inequality, even as he preached that it should not be. We call that caste is acquired by birth and sustained by endogamy. For Ambedkar, caste is an enclosed class, and endogamy is the only characteristic of class. Importantly, he says that he saw Hinduism itself as responsible for a social psychology which produces an ascending scale of hatred and a descending scale of contempt. Ambedkar was skeptical of Gandhi's appeal to conscience. For him, the fundamental condition for the growth of the sentiment of fraternity is not preaching that we are children of God or the realization that one's life is dependent on others. It is too rational to give rise to a sentiment. The condition of the growth of the sentiment of fraternity lies in sharing in the vital processes of life, in sharing in the joys and sorrows of birth, death, marriage, food. Those who participated in these 
come to feel as brothers this is what ambedkar argued so it's it's not just identification in some rational way but actually feeling together living with people sharing their lives that's what makes you see the world like they do gandhi on the other hand was of um uh, the view that um i think i moved up um to abolish caste is to demolish hinduism and there is nothing to fight against varnashram dharam Gandhi writes that I do not believe that the caste system is odious or vicious dogma it has its limitation and defects but there is nothing sinful about it given such an extreme divergences in their underlying beliefs it was no surprise that they clashed on practical measures especially when negotiating with the colonial state for the protection of dalits in 1932 gandhi fasted against ambedkar's demand for separate electorates for the untouchables ambedkar protested against this emotional blackmail too aware of the unresolved contradiction at the heart of indian democracy ambedkar wrote on the 26th of january 1950 we are going to enter into a life of contradictions this was when india got its constitution in politics we will have equality and in social and economic life we will have inequality in politics we will be recognizing the principle of one man one vote and one vote one value in our social and economic life we shall by reasons of our social and economic structures continue to deny the principle of one man one value how long shall we continue to live this life of contradictions and i want to move on to the last two sections uh, on foundational values which is as philosophers perhaps of more interest to us to adopt anti-casteism as a value we must first differentiate between the different kinds of anti-casteism i've already indicated some there is the religious anti-casteism there's a conservative anti-casteism and the modern anti-casteism so some of vivekananda and then gandhi were examples of the religious anti-casteism uh, you know from a modern perspective you could say they are apologists of caste um there is a tendency which i didn't really discuss but it is of uh, a group called the jat pat todak mandal for whom at whose invitation gandhi uh, ambedkar wrote this magisterial lecture annihilation of caste which he did not deliver they represent who might be called the conservative anti casteists in the written paper i'll say more about this uh, finally ambedkar himself is an exemplar of the modern anti casteists i have indicated my sympathies for modern anti casteism and link foundational norms to it so baba saab ambedkar extolled moral uprightness as he writes in the posthumously published the buddha and his dhamma dhamma is first and foremost morality religion on the other hand especially when ritualistically followed was taken to task for the hypocrisies it generated and the inertia it induced He challenged the supposedly unchanging and supposedly infallible command of religion with the capital R. He wrote, "Every religion preaches morality, but morality is not the root of religion. It is a wagon attached to it. It is attached and detached as the occasion arises." Close close. In contrast, morality is dhamma and dhamma is morality. Dhamma is social, essentially so. 
in dhamma the need for morality does not arise from the sanction of god but directly from the need for man to love man the purpose of religion and this quote is to explain the origin of the world the purpose of dhamma is to reconstruct the world <coughs> so rather than rituals and sacrifices embedded in religions ambedkar considers morality itself as sacred the reason he gives for making morality itself sacred is that there is a social need to protect what he calls the best the best however he does not equate with the fittest the best may actually be the weak the ones who are in need of protection therefore morality as dhamma must impose restraints on the fittest to stop them from infringing on the rights of the weak Ambedkar speaks against the anti-social morality of thieves, businessmen and fellow castmen. Because their morality <coughs> is marked by isolation and exclusiveness. It is a morality that protects narrow group interests and that is what distorts this morality, making it anti-social for Ambedkar. <coughs> He concludes his argument for universal morality thus, quote A society which rests upon supremacy of one group over another, irrespective of its rational or proportionate claims, inevitably leads to conflict. The only way to stop a conflict is to have common rules of morality which are sacred to all. So how do we comprehend the universal morality that Ambedkar wants to recognize, wants us to recognize? What can we find? <coughs> Where can we find the standpoint from which to examine claims of value? A key requirement from Ambedkar is our willingness to subject received opinion <coughs> to, uh, to critical scrutiny. Ambedkar writes about the Buddha that for him nothing was infallible and nothing could be final. Everything must be open to re-examination and reconsideration wherever grounds of re-examination and reconsideration arise. Man must know the truth and real truth. To him, freedom of thought was the most essential thing. And he was sure that freedom of thought was the only way of discovering of truth. Sadly, the balancing acts of power games, cloud judgments, sully the truth and compromise freedom of thought. But non-contemporaneously, we can find truth-seekers and freedom-lovers. For example, they flourished under a comparatively peaceful and cosmopolitan Muslim rule before the enlightenment of the Western world. An extraordinary exemplar is Sufi Dara Sikoo of 1615 to 1659, uh, Akbar's great-grandson, who assembled Varanasi scholars to translate the Upanishads into Persian in 1656. So his attitude of the past is described by the philosopher Jonathan Canary as not deference to but to collaborate in the search for truth. That is the kind of inclusivity and intellectual humility that would underpin, un, underpin a durable anti-casteism. And my final slide is making sense of anti-casteism and towards the goal of equality, freedom and fraternity. <clears throat> Bernard Williams writes in Truth and Truthfulness that with history, as with some everyday narrative, every statement in it can be true and it can still tell the wrong story. So we have many stories, but making sense of it on a larger scale will be a matter of interpretation and the interpretation is up to us. As William says, the past will not make sense unless we make sense of it. 
So we have told our stories of caste in a common, though not shared space, where others are telling their own stories. And as William writes, when different stories with different demands of what makes sense are told at the same time and in knowledge of one another, they are not insulated from one another. Or if they are, this will not be a mere consequence of the relativist account. It will be a political fact, which is <coughs> constituted by there being two publics that do not speak to each other in ways that make enough shared sense. Close. So people try to make sense of the world in terms that help them survive in it. So the upper castes are trying to make sense of the world in a way that will help them survive in it. And the so-called untouchables, the ex-untouchables, the so-called lower castes are also trying to make sense of the world. But is this difference precisely not the condition which generates collective hypocrisies? There is no dialogue possible, and people fall back into generating hypocritical explanations of why they need not budge from the position that they hold. So what shape can anti-casteism take in the scenario I've described? Must one temper the goals of a campaign to accommodate anti-racists who are not anti-casteists? This seems to uh, presuppose that we have to answer the question of who are the we with whom we are trying to make sense of our world. Ambedkar has a word of advice. It is not men, uh, <clears throat> it is not enough if men act in a way which agrees with the acts of others. Parallel activity, even if similar, is not sufficient to bind men into a society. He gives the example of participation in Hindu festivals. Though celebrated by the majority, they did not facilitate common activity across castes and therefore failed to generate um, a feeling of society. Without being animated by the same feelings, there is no society. By implication, the same would apply to anti-casteism. Without being animated by the same feelings of protest in a common struggle, there is no guarantee of solidarity. Ambedkar was a courageous, at times even insolent, internal critic. Without his kind of fearless internal criticism, we would have dogma. When we cannot distinguish between the domain where truth matters and the domain where fantasy desire, imagination is rightly allowed a free reign. The sphere of the sacred itself risks being lost when existing hierarchies determine what is or is not sacred. Anti-casteism has equality as its goal, but equality of what? Not the defanged equality that Gandhi offered to the defenders of Varnashram Dharam. This is what Gandhi said. I think we have to realize the dignity of labor. If a barber or a shoemaker attends college, he ought not to abandon the profession of barber or shoemaker. That was Gandhi's ways of equalizing the value of all labor. For one was equal only when one stayed within the rules, histories and limits of the hand. That's what Gandhi said. Whereas the insurgent Ambedkar wrote, my final words of advice to you are educate, agitate, and organize. Have faith in yourself. With justice on our side, I do not see how we can lose our battle. It is a battle for the reclamation of the human personality. And finally, uh, a value which was extremely important for Ambedkar and 
more fundamental than equality and liberty was fraternity. Maitri is the word that's used, or friendship, as an ideal. If we take that as an ideal, then several questions arise. With whom must I identify? Well, there is always a choice. Which version of tradition must I immerse myself in? The choice will appear as a choice only after the given identifications with this or that caste loyalty, with this or that nationality, with this or that history is dislodged. So in a pragmatic spirit, in pursuit of achieving practical goals, amongst other things, by drawing attention to the penalties of for transgression of caste norms, which I've tried to do in the stories that I've told I, in my other research on what people suffer, anti-casteism exposes the lie that the caste system is benign and seemingly self-perpetuating when it is everywhere enforced with the complicity of the privileged caste. Thank you.